The text for this morning's message is the 12th chapter of Acts, verses 1 to 25. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized them, he put him in prison and delivered to him four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The very night when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your mantle around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and passed on through one street. And immediately the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and told that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are mad. But she insisted that it was so. They said, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, Tell this to James and to the brethren. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, and there was no small stir among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, and when Herod had sought for him and could not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea, to Caesarea, and remained there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him in a body, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and made an oration to them. And the people shouted, The voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord smote him, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Well, that's a chapter about God and about Herod. 
And the point of the chapter is, if you oppose God, you lose. It's a very simple chapter. If you oppose God, you lose. The chapter begins with Herod killing James, and it ends with God killing Herod. If you, if you oppose him, you lose. It's a real clear chapter. It's just a resounding warning to us this morning. If you stand against Jesus, if you array your life on the other side, you lose. I think Luke wrote this chapter. It's sandwiched right in between this trip down to Jerusalem as a unit to make that very point. Because when you're a little band of Christians in a huge Roman Empire, and your movement is not very old, and they've killed your Stephen, and they've killed your James, the questions begin to rise in your mind as to what the future of this movement is, and whether God is really strong enough to pull it off in the world anyway. And the point of this chapter for all of the Thomases among us is, it doesn't matter if you feel small in the Roman Empire. It doesn't matter if you've just lost one of your key leaders to political whim. The truth is, if you're on Jesus' side, you will win. And if you are against him, you will lose. That's the biblical truth radiating out of this chapter for those of us who might feel in America today that it is becoming so hostile towards Christianity that who knows where the end will be in this strange land of ours. So the main point is, stay on Jesus' side. You will win eventually. If you array yourself against him, you will lose. Now, the way this point is unfolded in this chapter is by showing us this man, Herod, and how his desires emerge and God's response to those desires. The two desires, at least, that emerged. The first one is self-exaltation. He wants to be exalted. And second is Christian limitation. The first one is deeply rooted in his own soul. He wants the praise of man for his power. And the second is a means to that end happens in the political situation in Jerusalem, that that's just the way you get the praise of men. You kill people like James and Peter, if you can. Verses 2 and 3. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He cut off his head, probably. Just like John the Baptist. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. Now, there you see what he's after. Oh, look, I don't just get rid of a Christian. I get popularity for my power over Christians. So if that's what I get, and certainly that's what I want, I will do it again. And so he arrests Peter. And so you get a very clear insight into what makes this man tick. Self-exaltation makes him tick. I am powerful. I can kill people anytime I want. And if I get applause for it, just double my blessing, and I will do it again. And so it's, it's glory that he wants for power. He wants to be praised and known and recognized and feared, probably, for his power to take life from Christians. And his second desire, namely just to oppose Christianity and keep it in check, seems to be kind of secondary to that most fundamental desire of self-exaltation. 
Now, why did he first arrest James anyway? We're not told. But it's not hard to imagine that a man with this kind of mindset and disposition of heart would be tremendously threatened by the basics of the Christian message. There was another Herod, you remember, Herod Antipas. This is Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the the one who killed the babies in Jerusalem. Herod Agrippa is another Herod in the New Testament who killed John the Baptist. So we know of another Herod who was so offended by the Christian message of righteousness that he arrested a man named John the Baptist, and in order to please his party, he killed him. We've seen this before, right? It's not a new thing that's happening here a few years later. A Herod arresting a man of righteousness, seeing that arrest and killing pleases, and therefore moving on with that deadly purpose. I think if you go right to the heart of why he arrested James, you could find it in a text like this where Jesus said in John 5:44, How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now turn that rhetorical question into a statement. How can you believe means you can't believe if your life driving purpose is to get glory from people Instead of seeking the glory that comes from God, you can't believe on Jesus. Now, why is that? Because faith is fundamentally God-exalting and glory-seeking is fundamentally self-exalting and the two can't fit in one person. They can't. If you are a fundamentally glory-seeking person from men and faith is at its root a God-glorifying, God-exalting state of the soul... You won't ever believe. You can't. It'll, you'll hate the message of faith, in fact. It's so humbling. It's so self-effacing that you will turn from it and still want more credit instead of giving God all the credit. And so we know what Herod is like. And therefore, we know that if James was preaching the message of Jesus, Herod wouldn't have liked it. And so there's an easy answer in the New Testament, for why he might have arrested James in the first place. So he's pressing on now, trying to build more praise, more glory for his power. You follow that on through to the end of the chapter, and it comes to an incredible climax in verses 20 to 23, exactly, in fact, where all of our pride is tending. I think that's another subordinate point of this chapter The dynamics of pride and self-exaltation are laid bare in this chapter so that you can see where they're really heading. And where they're really heading is, I want to be God. That's what pride is. I want to be God. Adam and Eve made that mistake in the very beginning. Every human soul, apart from the grace of God, wants to be God. That is, doesn't want to be told by anybody else how to live their life. Thank you. I want to be my own God. That's exactly where Herod is tending, and that's what's revealed now in verses 20 to 23. The situation is that Tyre and Sidon, these two cities up on the coast of Syria, are beholden to Herod for food. Galilee was the breadbasket of the coast, just like Iowa is the breadbasket of California. And so they needed food, and to get food, they needed to get the anger of Herod out of the way and have him in their favor again. And so they were ready to bow and scrape and use every means they could to get in their his good graces. And, oh, does Herod like that? You betcha. And so he makes the most of it. He not only 
has them bow and scrape to get the food they need, he raised himself in a silver robe. Josephus, by the way, writing uh, concurrently here outside the New Testament, tells this story in great detail, exactly the way Luke tells it, only with a lot more detail. It says he put on a big silver robe and got up early in the morning so that the sun coming through the window would shine on it and give a regal and godlike appearance. And he gave this long oration. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne and made an oration. So three things, a big robe, a high throne and a, and a, and a flourishing oration for these poor people from Tyre and Sidon who needed his food. Point is very clear. You're not just coming to a tenant farmer to get food. You're coming to me. And I'm like, God. I'm a benefactor. that ring a bell for anybody about what Jesus said? Luke 22. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority are called benefactors. It shall not be so among you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves Herod is in direct and explicit violation of Jesus' teaching not to want to be called a benefactor. God is the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. The point of this chapter is give God glory. Don't seek glory for yourself. Give God glory. He's the one who gives food, not Herod. Well, Herod's not interested in that kind of humility. The people play right into his desires. Verse 22, the people shouted, The voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod didn't say, Oh, no, no. Herod took it. He wanted it. He was angling for it. And at that moment, God's patience ran out and killed him. There are two desires now in this passage that Herod had. One, the desire to be exalted among men and as a means to that end, the desire to get Christianity out of the way because it stands precisely in the way of that mindset and that orientation on life. So much for Herod. How about God in this chapter? What did God do? God put Herod in his place in three ways in this chapter. And when I, when I say he put him in his place, the place I mean is this, taking the Lord Jesus' words, he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what Jesus said in Luke 18, 14. So Herod's place is low. Now, how does God do it? Three ways. Number one, the first way God puts Herod in his place is by taking his prized prisoner right out from under his nose. Peter. According to verse 4, Herod had planned to bring Peter out for a public execution the next day to please the people like with James. Verse 5 says the church was praying The Lord, on the very night before it was to happen, 
in spite of four squads of soldiers demonstrating the great power that this invincible Herod has, sends an angel who with his little finger causes chains to fall off of Peter's hands and feet, wakes him up, clothes him, walks right by the squads of soldiers. The iron gate, it says, of its own accord. I can just see God. Just Watch this, Herod. It just opens like this. He's out and free and gone and never arrested in Jerusalem again. The Lord rescued Peter to show that when James died, God was in control. Watch out, Herod, lest you think the score is one for Herod and one for God. Tie game. Let's go, God. That's not the score. The score is two to nothing. God. Because if God can send an angel to take the chains off of Peter's hands, to cause the guards to go blind, to make iron gates open, he could have done exactly the same thing for James. And he didn't do it. Why? Because the Lord Jesus had said to James, the cup that I drink, you will drink. It was cup time. It was the Lord's appointment. The score is not one to one. The score is two to nothing. God. God didn't fumble the ball with James and score a touchdown with Peter. If he turns the ball over for a couple of downs, it's because he knows a better way to win the game. Martyrdom is a tremendous power in the Christian church. Listen to the words of Paul. If you want to understand a biblical psyche or a biblical mindset with regard to how martyrdom functions. This is Philippians 1.14. Most of the brethren have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment. And are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. That's the function of martyrdom. Much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Because I, the chief apostle now, am in prison. Ready to be killed in Rome. What does this do to us? What happens? I just heard on the radio yesterday. I'm sure many of you heard this. Magna Cum Laude from St. Olaf, Tim Olson, just before going to Harvard School of Design, decided to give a year of his life in the uh, uh, Central African Republic. And he's killed building this church a couple days ago. What does that do now? I was lying there in bed when I heard that yesterday. As I was just, the radio came on. That was the first thing I heard. What effect does that have on you? It puts us face-to-face -face with eternity. No longer playing any games. There it is, face-to-face. -face. It makes faith real. It strips us of petty 
pursuits and trivial anxieties. And it fires us up with the same zeal. Tertullian, one of the great defenders of the faith who died in 225 A.D., said, We multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. Jerome, 100 years later, said, The church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others. By enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow And martyrdoms have crowned it. No, God had not fumbled the ball with James and scored with Peter. God never says, oops. It's two to two or two to nothing, God. So the first way that God puts Herod in his place is by taking his prized prisoner right from under his nose in spite of four squads of soldiers and his deepest prison and his iron gate and his great regal power. He's gone and out of there because God can do whatever he pleases with the kings of the earth. Second way he puts Herod in his place. First he takes his prisoner. Second, he takes his life. The angel of the Lord turns up in two places. The angel of the Lord turns up to save Peter, and he turns up to kill Herod. Verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord smote him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. So the point is real clear here in this chapter. If you rob God of his glory, if you make yourself the center of your life and your universe rather than God the center, sooner or later you will be killed by God. God will kill you forever. It doesn't have to be that way. Advent season is all about rescue. But if you reject the meaning of Advent, if you reject Jesus Christ, if you reject the cross, if you reject the resurrection, if you reject forgiveness of sins, if you reject the ransom and the redemption and the justification, he'll kill you forever in hell. And he will be infinitely just Because it's a hideous sin to glorify yourself and not God. It's treason against the king of kings. Daniel, remember Daniel's way of handling this? Chapter 2, verse 21. God changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. And then he uses Nebuchadnezzar as the great example. And you remember what Nebuchadnezzar said. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty powers a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And as he was saying those words, a voice comes out of heaven and says, You will eat grass like an ox. Until you have learned that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he pleases. Bow, Nebuchadnezzar. Bow, Herod. Bow, Bush. 
Bow, Gorbachev. Bow before the Lord God, the Almighty. You have your station by grace alone. God raises up kings and God puts them down. The second or third and last way that God put Herod in his place, he took his prisoner, he took his life, and then to show that his attack had not succeeded in the least, but in fact had backfired in verse 24, it says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Herod is off the scene. Everybody who has ever resisted the church of Jesus Christ is gone and off the scene. And the church goes on and the word of God runs and is glorified and God's purposes will be achieved. That's the point of this chapter. If you oppose Jesus, you lose. If you're on the side of the word of God, it will run and it will be glorified. And therefore, the lesson is be on Jesus' side and do not think that you are small and insignificant? Do not think that though there might be a brief political upheaval in which the ball is handed over for a few downs to some secular leader, that the game will somehow be lost. But rather remember that God rules this world. And therefore be bold, be encouraged. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Go ahead, serve the word of God. Speak it. Stand up everywhere you work. Stand up and say what God once said and leave the rest to him. Let's pray. The prayer teams that will stand here at the front as we leave would love to pray with you. If you're a struggling Thomas today who has some tests in your life that you need help just to trust God for. They'd love to pray with you about overcoming pride, fear. They'd love to pray with you about embracing Jesus and bowing before him and exalting him rather than self or anything you brought into this room. So I invite you to seek the lifting of your burdens from prayer with these teams as you go. And now, Father, I just long so much to learn this lesson. And I publicly offer myself at any cost to be humbled. I would rather die this afternoon than go the route of Herod in lifting up himself. If it were to cost me my wife or Karsten or Benjamin or Abraham, or Barnabas, I would pay anything, Lord, that I might be useful. Grant, I pray, a submission in your people, that we would be lowly and humble under the mighty hand of the Lord God, the Almighty. And may under that great hand we experience the encouragement of Jesus, and the boldness of those Christians. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.